Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 69, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Psalms, Psalm 69. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. You just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. We try to cover a little bit of territory on Sunday nights, and it's always easier to follow along with a Bible in your hands. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. We come to Psalm 69, and Psalm 69 Mm. -hmm. No, Psalm 67. Okay. Thought I was trying to duck three psalms, huh? Or two psalms anyway. Psalm 67 uh, tonight is a start. Psalm 67 is referred to as Israel's missionary psalm, and it expresses... Uh, the psalmist does the heart of God or the concern for God for the whole wide world to come and know Him. Now, we have, uh, as Christians, it's just a given. We recognize uh, that God loves us individually, that God wanted to save each one of us, and we understand His heart for the whole wide world and that what He has done in our lives that he wants to do that in every human life. And so the Lord has given us a great commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, Jesus said, even as he has commanded us. And so we're kind of debtors. We feel that someone shared the gospel with us, somebody uh, showed us the way on how to grow in our relationship with the Lord. How could we keep the thing that has changed our life and our eternity a secret to ourselves? We have the same concern, the Holy Spirit in us, to let the whole world know that, again, what He's done in us, He will do in anyone, and we are living proof of that. If He can save us, He can save anyone. That's why nobody is out of the um, you know, the, in the hopeless category as far as I'm concerned because I look at you and I figure if he can save you, he can save anyone. But we look really at the Apostle Paul getting saved on the road to Damascus, just the most unlikely person really almost in church history that anyone would be saved. Talk about somebody who wasn't looking to be saved, you know, hating the things of the Lord, hating God's people. God was at work deep in his heart. That's why Jesus, when he wrote to the church at Laodicea, he said, I'd rather you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm in that category, I'll spew you out of my mouth. It's harder to reach a lukewarm person than even a person that's just cold toward God. God is able to get through to them sometimes even easier. So God was working. But Paul teaches us that, boy, any person that we're looking at, they can just be an hour away from being saved as God is trying to work in their lives. So we just grow up as Christians with this recognition that what God has done in us isn't, just doesn't stop with us. He wants to reach the whole world. But it's a little harder to find that sometimes people think anyway related to the Old Testament Scriptures. I remember one time we were in Israel. We will get to the song. So one time we were in Israel... And I was talking to a guide, not our particular guide, but another guide. And he said, you know, you Christians have been given the Great Commission, but we don't, as Jews, we don't have a Great Commission. 
And I knew what he was saying. We have, we're unique in the, the clarity of the commission that we've given, but he was wrong uh, as well. What God did with, the, with the, the great commission that we have is we're to go out to the whole world and bring this news, whether it's to our family, our neighborhood, our apartment complex, our nation, the other side of the world, whatever it might be. We go. We take this message with us. But God did a little something different in, with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. What God did is He planted the children of Israel. It wasn't just like, okay, here's a section of the world and you can grow really great um, uh, olive trees and vineyards and fig trees and all of this kind of stuff, and I'm just going to plunk them there solely because it's an a agriculturally prosperous area with water and rain and seasons and all of those things. The nation of Israel is the connecting point for three of the great continents of the world. Africa, Asia, and Europe come together at Israel. And in ancient times, if you want anybody that wanted to go anywhere that was considered anywhere from those three continents, you pass through Israel. And so all Israel had to do in order to influence the whole world was just to obey the Word of God, watch God prosper them as a people, spiritually and materially, and then as the whole wide world is passing through their lands and sees what their God does, then they would want to turn to the God of the children of Israel as well, make Him their God as well. In other words, instead, God brought the whole world to them, but He still had something that he wanted to speak to the world through them in their obedience. The reason that the children of Israel were in large part unsuccessful in kind of exporting their religion, so to speak, or their knowledge of God is they never obeyed God long enough for God to prosper them spiritually and materially in the way that he wanted to that would impact the nations in the way that he wanted to. They were continually in the cycle of God blessing them. They got fat and sassy spiritually continually, and then they would begin to become disobedient to the Lord, engage in the idolatry of the nations around them, go under God's judgment, repent, and start the whole cycle over again, and sometimes be taken into captivity to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians as well. And so the plan that God had for them never really had the impact because they never really gave Him the chance. But God had as great a heart to reach the people in the Old Testament times with the knowledge of Himself as He does in the New Testament times. And we get this hint of this in the psalm as the Holy Spirit moves the psalmist uh, to speak of these things. He said, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Now, a shining face is a happy face. It's a, a shining countenance. It's a, it's a face that's pleased with what it's seeing and a face that is favorable. If you walk in and you're going to ask the boss for a raise and his face is shining, well, that's a, 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 you know, bodes well for what it is that you want to do. If you walk in and he's just like, uh, uh, sip some vinegar or something, you know, you, boy, this is a bad time to bring this up. And so God has a heart to, to, to bless. And so he's calling for 
God's blessing upon them, that, there's a reason for this, your way may be known on earth. Bless us spiritually, Lord. Prosper us materially. Get the attention of the world so they see how great it is, how wonderful it is to walk with you, that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all of the nations. So they'll recognize that you're the same God. They can take this back home to their own land and know that what you have done to save us, you will do also for them. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. In other words, here's this concern for the whole world to love the Lord, be praising the Lord. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. And so this desire that he has within his heart that the whole world would know God and worship the Lord. And that's going to happen someday. So you're kind of a far fulfillment here in a way that he couldn't have known, the writer here, but the Holy Spirit knew, really picturing the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium, where Jesus following his second coming, his footsteps down on that Mount of Olives, he enters into the city of Jerusalem and he begins a thousand-year reign. In, in Jerusalem, rules over the world, perfect righteousness in his, that reign over the whole wide world, and everyone will uh, know of him. They will submit to his uh, leadership and to his judgment and the way that he governs the earth. And so this is the longing of the psalmist's heart. Imagine a world where everyone worships the Lord. Not one person that doesn't uh, obey the Lord. I mean, I don't know. I'd have to work on that a little bit to think about it. But I'll be there. So one day I'll, I'll experience it for myself. Let the peoples praise you, O Lord. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. This is interesting to realize that during this thousand-year reign of Christ, when there's no more wars, no more fightings, no more power struggles, no more dictators or power-hungry people becoming the leaders of nations, pulling all of the money, uh, you know, the grain money or food money, the resources to them and their forces and letting half of the nation starve or using all of the wealth from oil or uh, agriculture to buy weapons and all, that this earth can readily feed everyone that is in this world. There is not a problem in this world with overpopulation. Uh, we'll see during the kingdom age that this world is capable of feeding the whole wide world. But what it lacks at this time is it lacks godly leadership and it lacks a godly citizenry. That's the problem in this world. That's that you go all the way to the core. It lacks a godly leadership and godly citizenry. Once that's in place, this world will transform in a way that you can't even you know, fathom, and that isn't even heaven yet. And so uh, that's all going to happen during that kingdom age. Our God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. And so God is going to be respected, and that's the cry of the psalmist, that God would be respected all around the world, known and respected, and uh, one day that will be the case. We pray a similar prayer in the Lord's Prayer each time we pray it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And so we're talking about that kingdom age and and even beyond related to heaven and uh, in our prayers. And we know that the hope of the world, we're reminded each time that we pray that prayer, the hope of the world is the return of Jesus himself and the establishment of that kingdom. Psalm 68, beautiful psalm. And it's a psalm of praise to the Lord for the victories that he had, has given to his people. And the psalmist goes through and he kind of recounts the victories that God had given to the children of Israel through, uh, through their history. And it's really a good thing. The psalm kind of primes the pump for us to just stop every once in a while and think about the victories that God has given to us and to give him praise for it. He's going to talk about the children of Israel, their deliverance out of Egypt. And that represents our salvation. What a victory that was. That God delivered us out of darkness and into light. The life that I live as a Christian today, nothing like the life that I was living before I was a Christian. As a a victory took place in my life. Jesus not only defeated death and defeated the devil on the cross, but he was able to do it in a way that he could share his victory with us. And so not only that, but he's going to talk about here. It's wonderful, isn't it, when somebody introduces something and talks about all the things we're going to get to ahead of time and then talks about it again when you get to it and repeats himself. Listen, not everybody can do this. Don't try this at home. But he talks about entering into the promised land and crossing the Jordan River. And the promised land for us is the land of God's promises. As now we are saved and we begin to obey God's Word and all of these promises begin to come true related to our lives, the richness of the life, the quality of life that we enjoy as Christians In our promised land, as he's saying yea and amen to his promises in our life, well, that's a victory that's occurred in our lives. You think about different things where we begin to serve the Lord or an answer to prayer. What isn't one of the greatest experiences in life is to experience answer to prayer. And I don't know, I have such a bad memory. Maybe some of you remember the first time God ever answered one of your prayers in a way that you saw it and you said, that's God. (laughs) That's that's a victory. That's something worth stopping and praising the Lord related to. And so it is, like I say, with our Christian service or in our witnessing with someone, someone else comes to know the Lord. That's a victory. And God is doing so many great things. Sometimes all we're conscious of is, you know, looming defeats or looming problems or we think they're going to be looming defeats, looming problems, and we don't stop and, and think about all of the victories that God has given to us. And it is really, really good uh, a, a, a thing to do, characteristic, and that's what the psalmist does. He said, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him. Now, that would have been a good place for a Selah, but the psalmist didn't uh, think so. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, that's very graphic, isn't it? So let the wicked perish 
at the presence of the Lord. And so this call for God to arise and judge the wicked. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yet, Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yah and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, defender of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sees the sol- sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. And so here is the psalmist considering uh, the heart of God uh, toward the powerless and toward the solitary. I like this, of course, the fatherless and the widows there in verse 5. Those were the most vulnerable um, uh, the, uh, in, in this, within a society and, and the heart of the, the Lord toward them. I like that in verse 6. He sets the solitary in families. Those that have no family, he puts them in families. You say, how does he do that today? He puts us into the family of Christ, the body of Christ. That's the best family you can be a part of. I'm not putting down anyone's family reunion. I don't know how close your family is. We have a great relationship with our family. But I'll tell you, nothing compares to when God's people get together. And I have to just pinch myself that there's a Sunday, there's a church to come to on Sunday night that I get to gather with you as a part of the family of God and worship the Lord together and study His Word together. And the Lord does that. He takes people that have no family or their families on the other side of the world, puts them in the family of the body of Christ and how rich we are because of it. He talks about those. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. That's talking about those that have been imprisoned uh, unjustly. And he works things to bring their righteousness forth and and to uh, free them and then bring them into a life of blessing. He said, O God, verse 7, just praising him uh, 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 for his faithfulness to uh, deliver them. And now he begins that history of the children of Israel. O God, when you went out before your people, delivering them from Egypt, when you marched through the wilderness... The earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. There wasn't just physical rain. There was the rain of manna as they were in the wilderness. There was the rain of quail. Um, There was the water from the rock. All of these blessings that God brought forth that came from heaven. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. That was all God's victory, His miracle. They haven't had quail like that since uh, the Exodus. They haven't had water from a rock in Sinai since the Exodus. They haven't had manna fall for 40 years. It wasn't supposed to go that long. But there's no manna falling out there in, in Sinai today. And this was God's victory for His people. It was a wonderful thing. And so it, it was, uh, as he speaks here, it was the presence of God, Sinai being moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Oh, you, O God, sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. 
So talking about the early days following their uh, deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. I can't believe, you know, I don't remember everything about it. I remember the early days of being a Christian. But think about what, what tender care. I mean, here we are in some, maybe it was in a church room or one-on-one with another person. We prayed and we invited God to come into our heart. This great miracle of a spiritual birth occurred. And at that point, we are a, um, a spiritual baby, a newborn. I mean, how vulnerable is a newborn? And look at what God did to protect our faith, to nurture our faith, to bring us from that place to this place, how we know Him today. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of His power and of His victory. He said, The Lord gave word, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of of armies flee. They flee, talking now about the conquest of the promised land of Canaan and the defeat of the kings of Canaan for the children of Israel to then inherit the promised uh, land. So emphasizing the defeat of the armies and the scattering of them. And she who remains at home divides the spoils. So the wives that stayed home of the children of Israel, tending the flocks and all, while the men went off to war, uh, they rem- she remains at home, divided the spoil as the spoils came back from the conquest, though you lie down among the sheepfolds. She would be taking care of the sheepfolds. And then the um, description of that, uh, the uh, kind of the booty, so to speak, on things and, and uh, spoils of those battles, you shall be like the wings of a dove covered with silver. Uh, Ladies, if your husband ever writes that to you on a card, that's a good thing. So the idea, and her feathers with yellow gold. Honey, may your feathers are like yellow gold. Put it in the card and send it. She said, what in the world? And you just have to go on Libronics and just uh, check it, and it's right there in the Scriptures. And the idea is all of these spoils would come back, and as she would be trying on the clothes, trying on the jewelry and all, uh, she would, in beauty of the sun coming, you know, shining off of all of this, that she would look, in poetic language here, like the wings of a dove, which are pretty all on their own, but uh, covered with silver, her feathers with yellow gold. And when the Almighty scattered kings upon it, it was white as snow and zalmon. And so the defeat of the kings and the conquest of the children of Israel and, and here the, uh, the, the scattered bodies related to the conquest and all. And, and uh, it was the, the defeat and the victory and all as beautiful as the sight of freshly fallen snow. So again, these are psalms. It's poetic language that's used to describe all of this. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. And so here he begins to praise the Lord for his victory and the capture of Jerusalem by David and uh, God's choosing of Mount Zion, which Jerusalem sits on Mount Zion as the, as the capital, so to speak, for, the, for, for Jerusalem, <clears throat> became the capital. I'm not, uh, I'm not having a problem with Israel having Jerusalem as a capital today, so don't read that into it if you're too politically minded. Uh, sorry about that. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. And so Bashan is referring to up in that region as Mount Hermon, very tall mountain uh, for Israel, 
9,200 feet uh, tall. It even snows in the winter. They have a little ski resort up there. It's very cute. It's like a, like a miniature golf ski resort. <laughs> they have up there. You drive by and say, what in the world is that? Oh, this is our ski resort. You know, every few years we get snow here and we all ski. You ski in Israel? Really? Okay. Get a postcard of that. But Mount Hermon is a very, very high mountain, beautiful mountain, and it's talking about uh, the jealousy that Mount Hermon is feeling over the choice of Mount Zion to be the place where God would dwell. And so why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will put it in it for, will dwell in it forever. And then the description of uh, God's victory over uh, in the conquest of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. It wasn't David and it wasn't Joab. It was God behind all of that supremely. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands, speaking of the angelic host that was a part of that victory. And the Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts from among men even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. And so in uh, Psalm, uh, in, in verse 18, we have a, a, a verse that is used and is quoted by, uh, De, uh, by Paul in the New Testament, and he quotes that, this particular verse 18, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, and where Paul says, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And Paul quotes this section of this great Psalm uh, 68, testify, the Psalm that's testifying to God's great victories accomplished on behalf of his people, and here specifically of God's ascension uh, into Jerusalem, so to speak, and it reminded Paul of another ascension, the ascension of Jesus into heaven following his resurrection in order to send his Holy Spirit and, and to impart spiritual gifts to his children. And so uh, all that once held men uh, captive, Satan, sin, death, all of these things have been conquered at Jesus' ascension into heaven he, Christ received gifts. He then gave those gifts to those for whom they were attended, uh, intended through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so you see that in Psalm, you see it in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter four, verse eight. And you think, what in the world does it have to do with uh, uh, Psalm sixty-eight? Psalm sixty-eight is a psalm of victory. We have uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit in our life. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We have the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, spiritual gifts. We have all of these things, not just because we have them. We have them because of a victory that Jesus uh, won. And so the, the Holy Spirit moved Paul to think in terms of this psalm uh, related to all of that. Verse 19, This is a, he continues with just praise for a victory over the Jebusites and the conquering of of Jerusalem, blessed be the Lord, fabulous verse. Verse 19 is just a great standalone verse. It's, this is just plaques. This is stuff you put plaque on plaques, you know. Blessed be the Lord. All right, give me one good reason. Now I'll give you a bunch. Who daily loads us, plural, with benefits, the God of our salvation. Every day he loads us with 
benefits. He is worthy of praise. Our God is the God of salvation. That's a victory and worth praising God for. And to God, the Lord belong, and to God, the Lord belong escapes from death. Jesus is victory over death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespass. What's that all about? Hairy scalps and everything like that? We went from poetry to what? Gore or what? I look. And it's talking about when they went, the children of Israel went uh, to fight against the Jebusites related to uh, Jerusalem. It was called Jebus beforehand. And um, talking about um, warriors who would say, I'm not going to cut my hair until we kill all of those you know, children of Israel. And so they got a big long head of hair. You're going, to have a, you're going to have long hair if you think you're going to wipe out the Jews. And, and sometimes you'll see that where uh, a quarterback maybe in the NFL says, I'm not going to shave my beard until whatever. And then you see him, you know, in uh, January. He's got a beard like this, you know. Kind of, they never won another game. It used to be Detroit was like that. You'd never make a vow like that if you played for Detroit or someone like that. But they're doing actually pretty good the last few years. But um, we still don't root for them. <laughs> so the hairy scalp is a dedicated warrior, and that is I'm not going to cut my hair until I've killed some Jews. And so the Lord just taking and defeating the Jebusites. And the Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring back from the depths of the sea that your foot may crush them in blood and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. So poetic language describing a very, very total and decisive victory. They have seen, and this now begins to speak of the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant into the sanctuary uh, in Jerusalem. He's just going to give the Lord praise for that. And uh, think about us in this new covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God to the children of Israel. And, and the Holy of Holies, the, that's where the Ark of the Covenant went in terms of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. And, and it was because of the Ark of the Covenant that the Holy of Holies represented the presence of God. And God says in the New Testament concerning you and me, the, concerning the simplest saint in the whole wide world, he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you know what word he uses to describe it is the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies because God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And that's why the Bible says we are living stones as a part of a temple. We go out throughout the whole world, all over the place, God's people, and we bring the Holy Spirit with us. You don't have to go to a place to have the presence of God represented in one place. It's amazing that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So much to be thankful for. And so they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before. The players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing uh, timbrels. And so the description of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into a tabernacle there in Jerusalem under David 
and the excitement of all of that. They got it right the second time, and that's what he's describing. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is, a, there is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. And so Benjamin and Judah made up the southern two tribes of Israel. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali were larger tribes from the northern half of Israel. And so everybody was a part of the bringing in of that Ark of the Covenant and the celebration both north and south. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. And so now he begins to praise the Lord for future victories. Well, when you have a history of God's victory in our lives, and every single one of us has a history of God's victory in our lives, and if you can't think of two, three, four, or five pretty quick, that's a good idea to maybe take a walk and rethink about those victories so they're a little closer in our thinking than they are. But all of us has a history of, of God's victory in our lives. And because God is that kind of a God, uh, He's not going to change on us related to the future. So what He's been in the past, He will always be, and He'll be in our future. And so because He's been victorious in our past, giving us these kind of victories, it means we can look confidently to the future, depending on who wins the presidential election now, we can look confidently to the future and know that He's going to give us victories in the future as well. He's not limited by anything. So that kind of faith, that kind of confidence in, in future uh, victories. Kings will bring presents to you. Verse 30, rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people until everyone submits himself with pieces of skill, silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. And so this is now talking again about the kingdom age. There's a far fulfillment to this. When it talks about the beasts of the reeds, that would be hippopotamuses or crocodiles, symbols of Egypt. So just talking about the day when the nations of the world will worship the Lord uh, in, in his millennial thousand-year reign. And then, uh, and then uh, the fact that there won't be any war during, uh, during the, that thousand years. Imagine no aggression, no crime, no victims, no wars, no arms race, no people starving because they're buying weapons for some kind of a thing. It's going to really, really be something. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. The whole world's going to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. And then he gives us this final burst of praise for, uh, to God for who he is and for his power. To him who rides on the heavens, uh, on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribes strength to God, His excellence is over Israel, and His strength is in the clouds. O oh God, You are more awesome than Your holy places. I like that. That's, that's a song waiting to be written, I'll tell you. Maybe kind of like a country western Christian song. O oh God, You are more awesome than Your holy places. And He is, always is. The God of Israel is He who gives strength and power to his people, 
Blessed be God. And so this beautiful, beautiful psalm speaking of the victories uh, of the Lord. And, uh, and our lives are characterized by one victory after another that Christ has accomplished for us. Now, Psalm 69 is a psalm of, that is written, and it's a prayer of a man of God who is experiencing persecution against the, by the ungodly uh, f- simply for having a zeal for the house of the Lord. And he talks about that uh, in verse 9, where we'll catch up to that, and that kind of helps us with the context of what's going on in, in the psalm. So here's a person who's a lover of God, a lover of the things of God, a lover of the house of the Lord, worshiping God, w- being with God's people, and he's being persecuted uh, simply for that, uh, for that reason. And so, and it is a psalm of David, we're told. So we kind of get a glimpse at the private price that David paid in order to, uh, because of his zealousness for God in his personal life and in his role as king. So sometimes it's easy to think about David and we read about the historical books and it was like, okay, David became the king and God was all over him and blessing everything that he did. And so, of course, he just made all of these righteous decisions and, and commandments and and, and honored God and blessed God in the way that things were run, and everybody just effortlessly fell into line and loved him for being a lover of God. That doesn't happen. That doesn't even happen among God's people. We're talking about resistance. David is talking about resistance against his love for God and his zeal for God, not by the Gentile pagan nations, but by people that call themselves the children of God. And so that's a, that's a kind of persecution that comes. We get a glimpse here at, okay, he paid a price in order to be faithful to God in the calling that God had upon his life. And here's a glimpse at the price that he paid in standing up to God's people in being faithful to that calling and obedient uh, to the Lord. I don't believe that any single person lives a life of just simple, uncompromising obedience to God's Word and His standard, whether you're called to be a king or called to be whatever He's called your eye to be without paying a price for it. If you're a parent and you raise your children as a Christian with a zeal for the Lord's house, and that zeal marks the decision-making of your home, what's allowed into your home through the front door or through any electronic communication, what's allowed to be watched on the television, the movies that are allowed to be watched, the literature that's brought into the house. And if you're a Christian parent who makes a stand that pleases God on those issues related to your family, Sometimes the hardest flack that you will receive is from other Christians, carnal Christians, who are unwilling to have that standard for their own life. So rather than repenting and doing what is right, they will criticize or begin a kind of gossip or backstabbing kind of deal related to you to bring down your stature 
in, in, instead of doing the right thing for themselves. And so there they are, they're raising, and they don't even allow this and that, and they're just fanatics, they're crazy. I mean, just, what in the world are they, you know, and, the, and that's the kind of thing that can even come from those that profess to be Christians. Now, fascinating thing about Psalm 69 is that it's second only to Psalm 22 and being quoted in the New Testament. And the reason that it's quoted so often in the New Testament is Psalm 69 is a very, very messianic psalm. So why would Psalm 69 be such a messianic psalm? Because Jesus lived the heartache of this psalm in his public ministry in a deeper way than David ever dreamed of. Jesus came to be the king of Israel. And who were his worst enemies? The Jewish religious leaders. The carnal. The ones who watched his life, listened to his teaching, and rather than repenting that their life was light years away from the holiness that they saw in Christ, they chose to oppose him and sully his name and try to bring the whole world to put his light out. And so what David is talking about here, and it's very real what he was experiencing as the king of Israel, Jesus experienced in an even more powerful and more painful way. He came unto his own, the New Testament tells us, and his own received him not. Not talking about the Romans, not talking about the Egyptians or the Assyrians or about the Ethiopians. The treatment that he received at the hands of God's people for simply being faithful for what the Father had called him to do and to be in the world. And so it's strongly, strongly and beautifully messianic. And so it begins with this cry for help in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters come up to my neck. How many of you can feel it? I was reading the other day, it was two or three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, where they had an article on a woman who was uh, texting on her phone. You ever see that, that video online where the lady's texting on her phone and she falls into the fountain at the mall? <laughs> Rarely is justice so pure. In the millennium it will be. But anyway, it was funny. I'm just kidding, of course, because it was kind of sad and embarrassing and the whole thing. But I was watching it in the privacy of my room, so I didn't feel have to get all blushed and everything. But they had, let's see, I was saying something, wasn't I, here? Ah, she was texting in Alaska. And as she was texting, apparently she fell off her deck and fell down a cliff uh, to the water by the ocean there. In a very difficult place, helicopters, you know, all kinds of emergency personnel to get her out of there because the water was beginning to rise. That's cold water, by the way. And so there's that panic. And here is, here's the one. The waters have come up to my neck. 
I sink in deep mire. He's caught. The water is rising. He can't get loose because his feet are caught in like a mud that's like clay. He's just caught there, and there is no standing. There's nothing he can push against to, to get up out of what he's caught in where the, where the floods overflow me. And so the water, the waves are now coming up to here, and now they're splashing across his face. The waves are going over his head. He's having to hold his breath while it's going on. Pretty miserable circumstance that he's in. I'm weary with my crying, and, and my throat is dry. He's yelling and calling out for help. And he said, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. He's looking to the horizon for God to uh, help him. He said, those who hate me without a cause are more than the numbers of my, the hairs of my head. And so not, he was being opposed by his enemies and they hated him without a cause. He was innocent of any wrongdoing. In terms of numerically, they were great in number. They are mighty who would destroy me. These were powerful men, powerful people. And if you, don't, if you think, here's David, he's the king of Israel, the most powerful person. And, of course, he was secure in his position because God had called him to do that. But if you, if you don't think that powerful people working against even the most powerful person can't undo them, then you've never run for office. And you've never held a, a powerful position before. And, and so he, th- these people were wanting to overthrow him simply because of the righteousness of his reign so that they could then uh, compromise and have the world be the ungodly thing that they wanted it to be or the carnal compromising thing at least. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I must restore it. So here's kind of like a messianic picture. Here, David is saying, I've done nothing wrong, and yet I'm the one that's paying the price for it. We owed a price, we, we owed a debt we could not pay, and Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. He paid, he, he, I must restore it. Oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. David's saying, I'm not saying that, I, I, that I'm perfect and, and that's it all. I don't want that to be people misunderstanding that that's what I'm saying in the psalm. But he said, let those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed. don't let them be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. That's great maturity. Where David recognizes, God, you are still God. You are the one. You are amazing. You are. And yet, Lord, for your own reasons, you have put me in this place that you have put me in. And, and he's, he's okay with it. He'd like to be delivered from it, but he's not rebelling against God. And, but his main concern is, don't let anyone look at my life and the difficulty of what I'm in the middle of right now, the righteous, to look at it and in any way to impact their faith in you uh, adversely. as a beautiful, beautiful uh, heart. He says, because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Now that's Messianic, verse 8. We know that Jesus... Uh, as it relates to his brethren, his brothers and his family, they rejected him 
as, uh, as the Messiah. They didn't believe the things related to him and didn't believe in him. Later they did as we see them all coming to faith in him as recorded in, in the book of Acts as they're waiting on the day uh, of Pentecost. Again, this also speaks of the fact that Jesus came to his own and his own did not uh, receive him. So an alien to my mother's children. So what David was feeling to the degree that he was feeling, the heart breaks so much more for Jesus uh, and, and the private pain that he felt. We don't see it in the, described in the Gospels on the pages of Scripture there. We get hints of it here because then the Gospels would be 3,000 pages long if it told us everything. It tells us uh, what we need to know and then we get these beautiful glimpses in the Old Testament. And then here's the cause for the the persecution. Because zeal for your house, the things of you, God, has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's the reason. Remember when Jesus took and he cleansed the temple because they were selling, uh, the money changers were exchanging money at an exorbitant rate, ripping people off in the name of God, the sacrifices that that they were selling at at an exorbitant price and all. Jesus cleared the temple and then as the disciples watched all of that, they realized the Holy Spirit brought this verse, verse 9, to their mind because zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's, that's, what, uh, that's what consumed Jesus was. My father's reputation is being ruined by this religious nonsense. He's being misrepresented. And then he said, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, God, have fallen on me. That's the package deal. And the world. People can't get to God. They can't yell at God. They can't punch God in the nose. They can't burn God at the stake. They can't fire God. They can't get get back at Him in that way. So the closest thing that this kind of person and ungodly people do in the world is to get back at His people. And so we end up bearing the consequences that when people do wickedness to us, because of our relationship with the Lord and for no other reason, we're not harming them, we're not doing them any wrong, we are an asset to society, we are a good person, we say, where in the world did that come from? There's something in their heart of a hatred toward God and we're the closest thing to God that they know and so they're going to persecute us. And I say it every so often and I'll say it again tonight. We must not expect the world to treat God in us, Jesus in us today, any differently than it, than it treated him 2,000 years ago. The same people, both Jew and Gentile, that hated him 2,000 years ago are going to hate you today and going to oppose you today. That's just the way that it is. And so David uh, recognized this. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting... That became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them, the terrible things that they were uh, saying about David. You think about the blasphemies that they spoke to Jesus while he hung on that cross. And then verse 12, those who sit at the gate speak against me, and I am the song of drunkards. And so again, very much a picture of Christ. 
when Jesus was crucified on that morning and he hung on that cross, the highest leaders of the Jewish religion, they blasphemed him, they wagged their uh, head related to him, uh, they, uh, they disrespected him in a terrible way on that place. And the idea was just to mock him and make fun of him. You claim to be the Son of God, and how do you end up on a cross? Well, if they had known their scriptures, they'd have known why he was on the cross. But earlier, before he ends up on the cross to be mocked by the judges or the high society, uh, he was mocked by the Roman soldiers, low society, like the drunkards here. And so he was getting it, David was getting it from people in high position, low position. Jesus received the same treatment, uh, but far more undeserving of it than David. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation, deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep water. So he cries out, Lord, this is what's going on. Please deliver me from this. Nothing wrong with asking for deliverance. Let not the flood water overflow me. In other words, don't let this circumstance and this opposition, uh, uh, you know, wipe me out. Nor let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Let not this be the death of me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. And again, verse 17, a beautiful messianic picture. He cries out to God, God, don't hide your face from me. And yet when Jesus was on the cross... The Father hid his face from him. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. And then he speaks to God of of the shame that he feels and the sense of reproach that he feels in all of this. David wasn't a machine. He wasn't just some, you know... Uh, robot of some kind. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man. So all of that shame, the Bible says that he endured the cross. Yes, he did that, but he despised the shame. Do you realize that? When he was on that cross, he despised the humiliation and the disrespect of the treatment that he received by his creation. The creator being treated that way by the creation. It was a shame and a humiliation. And what Jesus, of course, experienced far greater than David because he was far greater as the son of David, the very son of God. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. Jesus' heart was broken on that cross for the treatment that he received. This is way, this is way beyond nails through his feet and nails through his hands and a crown of thorns on his head. The piercing of his heart the hurt that he experienced on that cross 
at the treatment that he received from both Jew and Gentile while on the cross. He was going to come to the cross and die for the sins of the world. He was going to do that. But it didn't need to turn into that. God knew it would. But that's the double humiliation and just a desire to embarrass him and the pain that he felt as a result of that. Reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Remember, all of the disciples fled from him. No comforters left around him. And again, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As God the Father was necessary to forsake him, as Jesus became sin, he bore our sin on that cross. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And so we see that from the cross as well. As Jesus was on it, some tried to offer him vinegar to drink and uh, to give gall. Gall is a poisonous substance, but apparently in a small amount they must have felt in those days. I don't know about the scientific validity of it today, but in a small amount, uh, amount it would be kind of a pain reliever. Let their table, and Jesus refused that, by the way. He, he, he took all that he absorbed there in the, in the full physical pain of it with full mental alertness, full everything on that cross. Let their table uh, uh, become a snare before them. Now David cries for judgment to be upon those that would treat a person uh, like him in that way. How much more a world that would treat Christ like that? I don't know what's going to happen in the world that we live in today, but I know it's happening in other parts of the world Tonight, while we gather for this Bible study, there are parts of the world in Egypt and Libya, mostly the Muslim world right now, where if you're a Christian, your life is in jeopardy for being killed simply for a zeal for the Lord's house. And I don't know in my lifetime how far that will spread in the world, whether that kind of thing will spread even to the United States. But if they ever come to a day where they hold the gun to my head, I mean, I would trust God for the grace on all of that. I'm no big hero, by the way. Or they're gonna, somebody's going to take and cut my head off or whatever it might be for my faith in Christ. I'll tell you how I would view it is I don't want to live in a world that treats people like this for simply loving God. Time to get out of here because a world that will do that is a world that is demonic and is heading into a nightmare that they cannot even believe is a reality, and it's called the judgment of God. And so he said, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they uh, do not see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. In other words, their house to be empty due to their death. Let, let no one live in their tents. For they And here's the reason. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk 
of the grief of those you have wounded. And to add iniquity to their iniquity, let them, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Don't let them share in heavenly or in heaven or the eternal blessings. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And I will praise the name of the Lord with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull. How many, did anybody bring an ox tonight for us to slaughter? Good. It's interesting here, David, the magnifying the Lord, the praising of the Lord from a sincere heart, that pleases the Lord more than even the sacrifice of an ox or a bull which has horns and hooves, in other words, a clean animal. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in him, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And again, this is a far fulfillment in the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, where none of this kind of thing or nonsense or persecution of the righteous will occur. Not one incident of it, none, zero, not going to happen, and it's going to be another reason that it's going to be heaven on earth during those uh, thousand years. And so we'll stop there tonight and pick it up in Psalm 70, 71 next uh, week. Psalm 70 for the Psalm for the impatient. Psalm 71, a Psalm for old age. So I'm kind of glad we didn't get to that one tonight because we'll appreciate it more in a week. <laughs> so. Let's have the worship team come forward tonight. And before we dismiss, I'd like them to lead us in a couple of worship songs and just to meditate upon how good God has been to us, His victories and His power, and, and uh, just to bless Him and praise His name tonight as we head into a new week.